As you're listening to this episode, let us know if you have any questions for our guest. If so, please send us a message to team at onehaas.org or join our discussion board using our Clever podcast app. You can download the app at clever.fm. Welcome to the One Haas Alumni Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and today we're joined by Cynthia O. Young. She is currently the Vice President of Inclusion, Equity, and Belonging at Robinhood, which drives the company's approach to enhancing its culture of diversity and inclusion. She's also the founder of Breaking Glass Forms, where she develops strategies to accelerate and increase in more diverse leaders and inclusive organizations. And most recently, she is also an author. (laughs) She's written this book titled All Are Welcome, How to Build a Real Workplace Culture of Inclusion That Delivers Results. Welcome to the podcast, Cynthia. Thank you, Sean. I'm so happy to be here. Oh, there's one more thing <laughs> amongst that list of things. Uh, you are also a Berkeley Haas alumni. You are a undergraduate alumni. Is that correct? That is correct. It was quite a while ago. <laughs> <laughs> Let's start from kind of from around that time. I would love to hear about your background, where you grew up, how you grew up. I am actually one of those very few rare native San Franciscans. So I grew up in San Francisco, born and raised, but my parents are immigrants. So I'm first generation born here. And, you know, I think growing up in the Bay Area, of course, I had to end up at Haas, right? (laughs) Like UC Berkeley, like is the school All right. To go to um, when I was growing up, that was where my parents were like, that's the pinnacle. That's where you got to go. We don't care about anything else. And funny enough. So my dad was an engineer. My mom was a seamstress and they, you know, wanted me to be your typical kind of doctor, Asian track engineer, lawyer kind of. And I wasn't good at any of those things or really interested in any of those things. So I went to business (laughs) instead. Um, And I I went into basically marketing and finance at Haas with an intent to go into advertising, actually, when I graduated. Um, So I ended up doing that as my first career, as a matter of fact. And how did you pick that track? So one of the things about my personal background, right, is I've always been interested in people and what motivates them to do the things that they do. Like, I've always been really curious about how people make decisions. And so for me, like marketing seemed like the the perfect way to get into people's minds from like a consumer perspective. So how do you actually persuade them to change behavior and like buy something that they maybe hadn't considered before. And I was also a psychology major, so that kind of like gels. I didn't mention that earlier. Uh, So I I did a dual degree at Haas and the College of Letters and Science, right? So you can see how that kind of gels together. Like I like felt like I, I just wanted to, I've just been interested in people and thought process and decision making processes. I thought, well, the best way to apply that is in sort of a marketing job, which is why I, and, but I've always had like a creative bent to me. I never pictured myself in kind of one of those like environments at like Procter and Gamble where everybody was going at the time, where I envisioned lots of suits 
and very formal kind of work environments with cubicles that look like gray and drab and all that, like what you see in office space. So I wanted to do something that had more of a creative bent, and which is why I decided mm, advertising, that seems really creative. Let's go there because it combines like all the, the best things about applying kind of that like understanding of human behavior in a creative way. Because I love that process of like, how do you make an, a really an ad that sticks, right. that people talk about, that's culturally relevant, right? So that's how I ended up going down that path. But then after about 10 years of it, I was like, mm, this actually isn't personally gratifying for me. Uh, and I was really burnt out. Uh, so I went to grad school actually intending to open a nonprofit. I wanted to launch a nonprofit because I have a brother who is developmentally disabled. And growing up, you know, disability in the Asian community for me, I experienced it as very taboo. And uh, so, you know, my brother is, has been very insulated and doesn't have a community of friends. Like he just has family to take care of him. And, uh, you know, being an adult, there's lots of services for children, but once you grow up, there are not that many. So I was thinking I was gonna go launch a nonprofit basically to support people like my brother and my brother himself for adults with developmental disabilities in the Asian community in particular because of the specific stigma there. But then I got into school. I took a diversity management course. I saw somebody come in from Toyota who had a diversity manager job and who talked about how she created access to opportunity for everyone. And I was like, you can get paid to do that? Like, how do I do that? <laughs> right. And that's what started me down this path that I've now been on for 20 years. That's amazing. I don't know if it's because of my exposure to DEI, you know, but it feels like it's such a new thing. You've been doing this since, you personally, since 2004. And I'm just really curious, what was it like back then? What was the conversation like? And what was the just general, I think, corporate sentiment towards DEI? It was very different than it is today. I mean, it was very, most companies had more of a compliance and regulatory lens to it, where it was like about affirmative action. And those, all of those like good faith efforts that people were doing to be able to drive more diverse representation, right, within their organizations. And you saw a lot of companies that had like equal employment opportunity roles and affirmative action roles inside their companies and only like the largest, like really like well-established kind of IBMs of the world that had uh, roles that were like evolving that towards more of a diversity and inclusion space, right? Where it wasn't just about like your representation, but it was also about how do you actually like help that diversity in your organization reach its fullest potential, right? How do you actually leverage that in a way that helps to drive more creativity, more innovation, better decision-making, right? All of those things that help make businesses and organizations more effective. I think you started to see that maybe 10 to 12 years ago. And then that started to shift that conversation much more into, a, you know, this is part of a business imperative for companies, right? Like we, we know that there's a moral imperative that doesn't seem to be enough to make anybody actually do anything different than they, what they were doing before. 
Right. So let's think about this as like, what, how do we integrate this within our business strategy and our organization's DNA and not just how we think about talent, which I think is a prevailing kind of mindset in this space, but also how do we think about it in terms of our customers, in terms of how we develop our products, in terms of how we support the communities that we serve and in which we operate in that much broader kind of not just corporate citizenship and social responsibility imperative, but also part of like how we actually position our business for future success because we know the demographics around us are shifting and our customers' mindsets and what they're demanding is shifting. And right. so are we, can, are we positioned to better meet that? And I think that's where the DEIB conversation is now. Personally, I'm still on the journey of educating myself around DEI. And I've been thinking a lot about this myself. Like, why, why is that, right? I, I was born in China, moved to the U.S. when I was seven, and I moved to Michigan, which was not California. Mm -hmm. It's, I moved to predominantly white neighborhoods and had a, in my opinion, pretty privileged and fantastic upbringing. You know, diversity, equity, inclusion was something that was just not top of mind for me. Like, it was just something I never even thought about. And part of the reason I, I try to dig back was, well, was it because I came from a country that was very homogenous, right? Everybody looks the same, black hair, brown eyes. But then I realized there's still so much diversity in China that a lot of people don't realize, just like with India that I'm learning. These are two big countries, massive countries. And even China alone, there's 56 minority groups. And frankly, you know, as we can see with kind of the, how, the treatment, the, the weaker population, right? There is actually a lot of discrimination. And I, it took me a while to realize that this is not a, it's something unique to the United States in terms of diversity, equity, inclusion, even though we are a very diverse nation. You know, it's just that we are the, I feel like we're, as we are with a lot of things, uh, leaders and good things and bad, but we are really leading this charge, I think, in, in this field, in my opinion, because I don't think DEI is a huge thing in China, even though it should be, right? And so... What I'm trying to get at is like, why is this so important? <laughs> I think, I, you know, when I have these conversations with some friends, sometimes it's not top of mind for a lot of people because they're not impacted by it. Because again, especially, let's just take me for example, right? Come from a very privileged position. My parents paved a, an amazing path for me and, and I had a, a great environment to grow up in. So I didn't really face much discrimination and especially I'm curious too, from your position, you know, growing up in San Francisco in California, where there are large populations of Asians, how did you come to be so passionate about this field? Yeah, there's so many things to unpack with that question, Sean, because I am, yes, let me, let me sort of break it down and tackle like kind of in three different parts, because I think, you know, initially you, you talked about how like, there, there is so much diversity, even in places that you don't think about necessarily having diversity. And the definition of that, right, and how we actually drive inclusion is going to be different in different cultural contexts, right? So, so absolutely, like how we think about diversity here in the U.S. with our history of slavery and discrimination and different groups, like it's very different context from like China or India right, where India is, there's discrimination based on socioeconomic status as being a much more prevalent thing 
versus, as you mentioned, all those minority groups that are definitely treated differently, right, in China. All of that is very nuanced, and we have to make sure that we're not approaching it from a one-size-fits-all kind of perspective, right? And that's why it matters to everybody, because there is difference amongst all of us everywhere. And it's less about in-groups and out-groups necessarily, and more about inclusion and exclusion in my mind. Because even if you take it down to like the level of a team within an organization anywhere, if somebody is feeling excluded from that team, like they don't belong, like they're not being valued for who they are and what they bring, that person's not going to be productive and not going to stay very long. And so if we're all driving for like effective organizations and effective teams and effective like a productive output and things like that, then you have to care about this to drive that no matter what your team looks like or what cultural context you're in. So that's sort of the first part of that. And then I think the second part about how, why like I've come to care about that growing up in an area where you know, I think diversity is kind of seen as a norm here in San Francisco. And, and that comes from a couple of, of things, right? So I mentioned my one brother who is developmentally disabled. I also have another brother who's gay. I grew up, when my parents immigrated here, we came here with nothing. And so they had to work for everything that they had. And where we settled, where I grew up in San Francisco, we settled in a primarily Black community. And so not only was I wrestling with the whole like cross-cultural, I, my parents have very traditional Chinese values governing the home. And I'm trying to navigate that sort of focus on community and Chinese values with like American values on individuality. Right. Right. And I'm amongst this community that looks very different from me, where I don't really fit in any sense of the word. So I've always, like, I've grown up always feeling like I didn't belong anywhere. Like, I'm kind of like this misfit. And it took me until high school to really find, I think, a group of friends who had similar kind of multiculturalism elements to their backgrounds, right? That yeah. I started to find people who I could connect with. But that, along with the fact that I have brothers who are clearly, like, have their struggles in life right? In ways that most of us take for granted. Like that has always like weighed on me in that like, why, like, why do we treat people so badly just because they look a little different or they love a little different? So the, those are the things that have made me like be like, okay, if I have an opportunity to change that, then that's what I'm going to try to do. Thank you so much for sharing that. It is the fact that I think a lot of us take a lot of these things for granted, even though I feel like very similar with you, like in, in the, when I first moved to the US, I definitely struggled to feel like I belong. I ultimately overcame it. And I think I overcame it because A, I'm a guy, a male, and there are a lot of things that kind of worked in my favor, I would say. And so my assumption is like, well, just deal with it, like for everybody else, right? And I think that is the mentality a lot of people adopt is, you know, just because you had it easy to adapt and people accepted you doesn't mean everybody else has that same opportunity or the same support to or, or the same environment, right? To find their way to, to become accepted. And so the onus isn't on them to fit in. It's more so the onus is on us to to be more thoughtful and mindful of other people. 
And that's very interesting because I was reading this article just, I think it was yesterday, on bullying, on how do we teach our kids. My wife and I have a two-year-old. We have another daughter on the way. And and I was just, this is something, I think this is the first time I'm talking about this on, on the podcast. Um, you know, it, it, it was something about, the article in essence was saying, anybody can become a bully, right? And it's not their fault that they become bullies. What it is, it's everyone's responsibility. It's not just the bully or the victims that's involved. There's a people, there's so many people that support the bully or that don't speak up for the victim, right? When they could have done something. And I think that's really what you're getting at is, and what we sh should all be more aware of is everybody has a role. Everybody has a responsibility. And so that's a really good reminder for that. Um, yeah. Thank you for sharing that, Sean. Because, you know, I think there's so much like there's so many parallels, right? I think bullying is its own kind of like it's its own form of discrimination in a lot of ways, right? Um, because it's like, you know, somebody is basically picking on somebody who's weaker. And to your point, what are we encouraging? What are we discouraging? And what are we standing up against versus kind of staying on the sidelines mm -hmm. for? And that all creates like the conditions or the environment in which behaviors like bullying and discrimination can thrive versus what I think we'd rather have, you know, is more like kindness and compassion. Right. people. And to your point, like it's, it's really, it is upon all of us to help to drive that because we each, every one of us has the, the opportunity to impact others because none of us are islands and we interact with people all the time. And so we can choose to be open-minded and listen and have empathy, or we can choose not to. And that is going to be what drives people's experiences and their beliefs and the lessons that they learn from those interactions, right? I want my kids like yours, right? I want my kids to grow up in a society, in a place where they're really valued and seen for who they are and what they bring and not right. some other thing. No, that's absolutely true. And I think what we're, all these things that we're talking about is in many ways, when I look at empathy, compassion and things like that, it is in many ways this the evolution I feel like of humanity because I, I remember watching I think a couple of weeks back your TEDx talk and you were talking about the hierarchy of needs right and then you had like Wi-Fi at the top as a joke and it reminded me of this concept that I talk a lot about which is that we have these four basic needs that are butting heads you have this need for security and a need for variety right constantly butting heads and then you have the need for uh, belonging and the need for significance also butting heads and you're always kind of moving along on the spectrum and i think especially with belonging and significance that's where we run into these issues of well we definitely want to belong to a group which is why like you want to be with hang out with the bully because you want to belong somewhere but then like you need to feel different and important and significant and so the most i think crude way is to put other people down for you to feel important versus contributing like giving right being helpful being empathetic, you can also feel important by helping other people too. And so it's something I'd like to hear a little, I think, explore a little bit more with you. And I would like to do that by maybe talking a little bit about your book. Can you share with us 
What is your book, All Are Welcome, about and some of the biggest takeaways from it? Definitely. And thank you for asking about that, Sean, because that book is like this culmination of 20 years in this space and all the lessons learned distilled into like a playbook for others, right? Whether you are individuals inside a, an organization or like the senior leader who's driving all the decision making at an org, I think anybody can get something out of it just in terms of understanding what is necessary like to drive change. And again, to our earlier conversation, like everyone has a role in that. And part of what the book outlines is really like what that role is and how you can actually play that role, but do it in a way that's like smart, actually helps you achieve the outcomes that you're driving for and isn't done in a way that's just performative, right? For like images sake. Because I care about like people getting to change. I care about people actually fulfilling their commitments around uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, um, that, that we're, we're, we say we're all striving for. But I also know that progress in that space is going to be pretty incremental, I think, over time. I wrote the book to help people, to hopefully help people try to accelerate that curve a little bit. So it doesn't take us another 100 years to get 2% more representation of female CEOs in the Fortune 500. <laughs> right, right. So that's partly why I wrote the book is to be able to share those lessons, but really to scale the impact and drive more change, hopefully in a bigger, broader way than what I can just do within the companies in which I work. I have a question for you. You're an expert in this area. And from my conversations with friends around DEI, I think where a lot of people struggle is that they have a scarcity mindset that we feel like, well, there's only so many when it comes to, let's say, you know, admissions, right, to schools. There's, well, there's only so many entrance spots, right? For corporations, well, there's only so many jobs. Hence, it feels like it's, anybody could say it's it's fair or unfair, right? Like, how do you overcome that kind of belief that because resources are scarce, because X or Y is scarce, that, you know, this is why we should be exclusive and not inclusive? I think it's, it, it is a prevailing fear. And I get it. And, you know, I, I think um, what I try to tell folks, especially in the context of organizations, is that you're, we're looking at this as if there's like one pie and everybody's trying to get their particular piece of it. And then that means it's, a, it's that zero sum game, right? Of if I get more, you get less. And I kind of like to reframe that because I'm not actually trying to slice up more pieces of pie. I'm really trying to make the pie bigger so that more people can get pieces of that pie. I, I think if you fundamentally believe that having more diversity equals better outcomes. You become a better leader if you manage diverse teams. You have more productivity, more innovation, more creativity. Like all of those financial performance metrics, which there's so many research studies out there that say that you get better outcomes. So what's the goal? Is the goal to optimize for myself or is the goal to optimize for the pie? Yeah. And so if I'm trying to optimize outcomes, then I'm going to want more diversity, scarcity mindset or not. 
Right. That's very true. I think this, this is partially why the United States is so attractive because we've been expanding the pie. <laughs> we, we love expanding the pie. <laughs> That's true. And so I think we need to really embrace it, that the pie is not finite. It is not finite, <laughs> exactly. And even like when, you know, you think that there's that finite, like at like admissions, right? There's this whole debate about that in so many different places. And, and I understand it, but, you know, it's, it's sort of like this, there's this interesting thing about like, are there really true meritocracies? I don't know that there are, right? Because we all have bias and it's really hard to keep that out of decision-making. And then on top of that, there's no one end-all be-all path for any one person either. Let's say you don't make it into the, your top choice school. Is the next choice for you, like, is it going to be like that bad? I don't know. We all have to like go down different paths and try different things and, and reconcile what that means for us in different ways. Sorry, that just gave me a lot more to think about. I think you're absolutely right. I, I think Maybe what it comes down to is that we need to make sure that everybody has more choices along their path or more opportunities along their path. Because you're absolutely right. It's not one decision point. It's not whether or not you get into the school, it's going to determine your life. It's what about the next thing? What about the next thing after that? I think in a scarcity mindset, we isolate everything to like, all right, if I don't get into this school because somebody else got into school, my life is ruined. It's like, no, absolutely not. There's plenty of people like into Harvard that don't end up doing anything. So clearly that's not the whole story. And that's where like, we also need to think about, I think that's why it comes down to why diversity, equity, inclusion is so important is we just need to continuously give people opportunities along the way. Yeah. In all fabrics of life, which is why Again, you know, what your work is in your book and what you're doing is so important. It's not just one company. Every company can do this so that everybody has more opportunity everywhere. Any, any additional thoughts or things you want to share from your book? I feel like I've gone down all the existential paths. So <laughs> okay. <laughs> but but the, I, I think the last thing that I would I would say is, you know, there there's a, a chapter in the book that's actually about risk taking. And, you know, what that translates to for me in, in so many conversations is like, how do you get past the discomfort of this topic of even engaging in conversations about racism, as an example, right? Or homophobia or, you know, cis sexism, like all these things, right? And I think it's really important that people actually get educated and in order to have the courage to take some of those risks, right, and share some of that power with people who maybe wouldn't, you know, be able to participate otherwise, right, right. and be allies in, in this space. Like, you know, I, I just think that we can't sort of shy away from the topic and, and still expect us to make any different progress in this space. We got to hold the mirror up and do our parts to make it all happen. Yeah. My last question is, you know, it's being Women's History Month, are there any insights or data that you want to share about how to create a more equal, inclusive workplace for women specifically? So, yeah. <laughs> is that a good question? <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes I, I, especially around these topics, I've already learned over the years, like, you know what, Sean? 
just ask the question, even though it might, you might sound like an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> you don't sound like an idiot at all. It's just making me think like, you know, how do I distill like everything that's in the book down to like a, a few minutes? <laughs> because it's no like one thing, right? I that's think, right. Yeah. I think that, you know, we've talked a little bit about allyship and the need for people who are in the majority, in this case, you know, men to really like be upstanders and actively support women in the workplace. I think the other thing that I would also really encourage people to think about is just that women as a group, we aren't a monolith either in that there's many of us have very intersectional identities, right? Where we, we have different aspects to our identity that are layered in with being a woman. Like I mentioned earlier, like I'm, I'm, I'm an Asian woman, right? And for an, uh, uh, women of color in particular, right, there's that sort of research shows there's that double bind that you have to face of not just sort of gender bias, but also racial bias, right, on top of that. And of course, like I know people who, you know, have yet more layers and dimensions of diversity on top of that. So it's important to, when we think about making progress for women, that it's not just progress for one group of women, which is very often white women, but that it's, it's where we're thinking broadly and we're looking at uh, our efforts through that, that intersectional lens and making sure that people aren't feeling left behind in some of these efforts. And, and so whether that's your, you know, you're providing coaching opportunities for people, development programs inside your company, broad education about gender issues and even what it means to be, what it means to be non-binary as well. Like all of those things are, are part and parcel of what we have to address to drive more equality for women uh, in the workplace. For someone who's educating themselves about DEI, I'm just going to speculate, it could feel overwhelming. What's some advice you can give for someone to obviously not be overwhelmed? Just from this kind of example you just gave, it can sound, you know, intimidating, right, to approach. How do we take bite-sized chunks <laughs> towards towards a more inclusive world? <laughs> that is a great question. Um, I think it, it is all about starting small. I think that you, you know, it doesn't take much to, you know, read an article in this space, find out about something that maybe you aren't that well versed in, whether that is women's history and the suffrage movement and or Native American uh, issues and what it means to be indigenous, right? There's a whole host of different issues. Like, just pick one. Pick one. Like, <laughs> start reading right. about it. <laughs> right, right. Super easy, right? Um, and then, you know, start asking. I think asking questions is really good. Like, not to the point where you're overburdening any one person to represent, like, their entire community, because that's not what we want, but to extend your curiosity, right? And to ask people about what are their experiences like so that you can get a, a, a more of a window and develop your empathy, right, for other experiences that are very different from your own. It costs nothing to ask, and you can learn so much about people who are willing to open up. And then the last thing that I think is, like, super easy for anyone to do is to just, like, engage and practice. I think oftentimes, like, you know, we're, we're afraid to 
open our mouths and inadvertently offend somebody, but like, okay, you know, like I, am I using the right pronoun? Um, uh, or, you know, I use the word black or disabled and somebody is just like, I'm, you know, I'm offended. Like, that's not how I label myself. And then, so we, we don't, we don't attempt again, but it's really about going, moving through that and just engaging in the practice on a regular basis to ask people how they want to be identified or if you're using the correct term that they go by or even as simple as just like making an effort to pronounce somebody's name correctly. It's all those little things that I think anybody can do that will just that, that really add up to creating connection and welcoming and belonging for folks. Yeah. It reminded me of like a personal story most recently. Like we as a startup, we are starting with culture in mind, and and one of our core culture, you know, company cultures is uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, right? And it you know happens that the two founders are two guys, <laughs> and it's really bothered us from like the get go. And it's so easy, obviously, to find advisors and mentors that look just like us who are also male. And so at a certain point, I remember, like, I think we had brought on two male advisors, like, we no more. Like, even though there's so many more qualified advisors we want to bring in, so no, we need to find some female advisors, right, to, to bring onto our board. And the same one with hiring. And and I think following on what you're saying is, is just this willingness to make mistakes, but be well-intentioned and uh, not make it about yourself, right? The whole idea is not that I look bad, but I made a mistake. I offended you and I need to learn from that so that I don't offend you again or offend someone else. And I think that's something that I've been learning because one of the mistakes I made was telling our, uh, the potential hires that, you know, we're looking for diversity hires. <laughs> that's not what we're supposed to be doing. And so my co-founder corrected me on that. He's like, don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, and it was a huge learning lesson. And I'm still fumbling my way through it and, and, and learning and embracing this, um, this learning because it, it is very much, you know, it's very important. It's just been a very interesting experience. Let's conclude uh, on that. No, it's so great that you shared that. I love that story for so many reasons, right? A, that, you know, your, your co-founder your co educated you on what's the better terminology to use, right? And for anybody listening who might be confused, you don't want to tell people that you're they're a diversity hire, right? Be for, because you want to hire people who can do the job. You want to hire people who are qualified. And I don't right. want to be hired because I'm Asian or Black or a Latino, but we want to be hired because we're not, we don't want to be tokenized in that way. And I think learning from that is just really important, but also the willingness to make the mistake and, and be open to the learning. And the second point that I think is also really important to get from your story is that, you know, very often when we think about like, you know, you're, you're looking for advisors and you notice that they're all male and, and you need to get a different perspective. Like that's kind of the core of it. And that, you know, I don't think people necessarily understand to the, to the extent that they should, um, meaning if we hire or we're looking for those advisors or people who are going to invest, like very often we think about this person versus that person. What is this person's background and qualifications? And they have X, Y, Z versus like this person, other person who might have some of this, but less of that might be from an underrepresented background. So what do I do, right? How do I define the most qualified hire? 
And what I encourage people to think about is like, what's best for the team, right? Like how, instead of the one-to-one comparison, think about what perspective do you need to add to your entire team to make the team better? What might be missing? And that's exactly what you did with your advisor board, right? You're like, sure, there are people who have like tens of years of experience that we could keep bring on, but we would be missing this completely other perspective that is going to be valuable to how we operate in the right. future. And I, I love that. And I think we all need to be doing more of that in order to actually drive the diversity that we want to see. And we all should get a copy of the book. All are welcome. <laughs> I'm going to put a link in the description. We'll also link it everywhere else on the, on the website. Thank you so much, Cynthia, for coming on the podcast. I do have one last lightning round question, which is, what are you looking forward to this year? I'm looking forward to getting on a plane for the first time in over two years since the pandemic started to take a long vacation on a beach in Hawaii. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds amazing. It will be. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, It was a real pleasure having you. Thank you so much for having me, Sean, and, and having the conversation with me. It was, it was really enjoyable and genuinely a blast. Thank you. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the One Haas Podcast. If you enjoyed our show today, please remember to hit that subscribe or follow button on your favorite podcast player. We'd also really appreciate you giving us a five-star rating and review. If you're looking for more content, please check out our website at haas.fm. That's spelled H-A-A-S. There you can subscribe to our monthly newsletter and check out some of our other Berkeley House podcasts. And until next time, go Bears. <laughs>